The Faculty Futures Lab is a project of the SDSU Initiative for Inclusive Leadership, a faculty-led effort to grow capacity to lead within institutions of higher education in complex and uncertain times. Funded by the President's Budget Advisory Committee. Learn more at fa.sdsu.edu. All guests speak from their own expertise and experience, not for San Diego State University. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Faculty Futures Lab. I'm DJ Hopkins. I'm a professor in the School of Theater, Television, and Film at San Diego State University. We've just passed the two-year anniversary of our retreat from campus at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Over these last two years, I've had some good times, some truly heartwarming experiences with my family during those shelter-in-place days. But I've also had some uniquely bad times, challenges that I've never had before, mostly around productivity. Like most professors I know, a lot of my identity is tied to my job. And as a result, my self-worth is linked to how much product I'm cranking out. And for a while there, in the first year of the pandemic, the amount of product I was cranking out was not much. But I know that I'm not alone in having felt this way because newspapers and magazines were peppered with articles about people's psychological experiences of the pandemic. Productivity was a hot topic, as was COVID dreams. The word languishing was trending there for a while. I certainly felt like languishing was trending for me there for a while. And as I began to recognize my own mental health challenges, I took solace from reading articles about all the people who found themselves going through similar challenges. And, you know, beyond the misery loves company factor, I also learned from the insights and advice that I read in those articles, some of which cited friends and colleagues from San Diego State University. In fact, one Washington Post article cited both Dr. Lacey Barber, who's a repeat offender here on Faculty Futures Lab, and Dr. Lisa Kath, who's joining the show today. Because today on Faculty Futures Lab, we're going to make explicit a subject that has been implicit in many of our previous podcasts. Today's episode is about faculty mental health. And I'm joined today by an amazing lineup of PhD-holding colleagues from San Diego State University's Department of Psychology. First up, and I already spoiled this surprise, is Dr. Lisa Kath. Hi, Lisa. Hi, DJ. It's great to be here. Dr. Kath is an associate professor of industrial organizational psychology, specializing in occupational health psychology. Continuing in alphabetical order, Dr. Allison Vaughn, welcome. Thanks for having me, DJ. Dr. Vaughn is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology and the associate director for the San Diego State University Center for Teaching and Learning. And Dr. Fion Viotas, thanks for joining the show, Fion. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Dr. Viotas is a clinical psychologist, a faculty member in the psychology department, and SDSU's executive director of graduate life and diversity. Thank you all for joining me today to unpack a few layers of this subject. Lisa, let's start by talking about your social media posts, because you've been pretty active on social media and kind of explicit about your health and wellness practice. What has prompted you to become a kind of public health activist? 
Well, I think it's probably a couple of things. First of all, it's really easy to get caught up in this idea that you have to put forward this front, that everything is going great. Everything is easy. Mm-hmm. You're always well. Um, and I just don't think that that's very realistic. So when you are able to say things like, well, here's a self-care bingo card that I think is kind of fun. So <laughs> here are some ways that I'm going to engage in some really simple self-care practices that helps to open the door for other people to think about those things. Um, the other right. thing is that when I posted on social media, hey, I decided that I'm going to see a therapist. I'm looking for recommendations. Who's got somebody? Mm-hmm. That helps to mm-hmm. show that seeing a therapist is okay, it is good, it's acceptable, um, and that it isn't something that people should be ashamed about. So I, I guess, you know, a lot of it is really just trying to model that taking care of yourself is really important and it's okay and there shouldn't be stigma or shame around it. I remember when you posted that bingo card. <laughs> I went through that. I was like, mm-hmm. I don't think I had bingo though. So I'm one of the I'm one of the ideal audience members for your Facebook posts because I don't do those things because I do want to post on Facebook like everything's rosy at his house. Mm-hmm. How has that regimen of self-care changed during the pandemic? Oh, if I'm honest, I think in the beginning I was very like, oh, we're going to get through this. I'm going to be so good. I'm going to be so disciplined. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to spend time with my family. I'm going to spend time in nature. Like I just had a lot of energy around self-care. And now it's kind of, I feel like it more often, it's just hard to care about anything, including myself. Oh, wow. (laughs) Which I know is kind of depressing, but I don't know. That's, that's it. That's how I, that's how I feel at this point. I wouldn't call it depressing. It feels real. It feels like we're all kind of exhausted by a pandemic. It's what I've heard other people say before on other podcasts when we've been talking about teaching or research. We're just exhausted. I think the other thing that comes up for me too is I've really moved in the pandemic away from the idea of self-care needing to be the Mm -hmm. center and the focus to really taking a look at the ways in which the systems in which we're operating care for us or don't care for us. And mm-hmm. I think we're very strongly individualistic in our culture in the US. Yeah. And so everything comes down to what are you doing for yourself? And I think it ignores the fact that you actually would like to be a part of some social support systems or some organizations that care for you. Mm-hmm. Allison. Fion, does that resonate with you? What? <laughs> yeah. I, I to pull the cat out of the bag. I study social support, and so I sort of practice me search research. Um, and I remember doing Lisa's bingo cards. Did you say me search research? Oh yes, yes I did. Could could you say a little bit more about that phrase that I already love? <laughs> well, so I study social support, um, stress and coping, and there's certain things we know, like we know we should take care of ourselves, right? Anyone in any kind of mental or physical health field, we know what we should do. We should eat well. We should get plenty of good sleep, high quality sleep. We should be physically active. And yet when we have to make a bingo card or remind ourselves or hold ourselves accountable, or when self-care starts feeling like a chore, 
or something that you just don't want to do. Like it's one more thing that you're going to either not make time for or one more thing that you're going to drop the ball on or one more thing that you're going to fail at. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we, we know what we should do. And yet there's a disconnect between that should and what actually happens. So like I, I really turn to my support network um, and I make sure that those relationships are healthy and strong because those seem to give me more of a boost than a good workout, right? Or a good night's sleep versus kind of a not so good night's sleep. Throughout the pandemic, you know, finding time to send a text or an email, make an actual phone call. Right. I think the lost art of chatting on the phone, right, was suddenly brought back up because everyone was sort of Zoom fatigued. So I remember having a conversation with you and having a conversation with Mike Borgstrom, right? Or dropping off baked goods to Lisa on the off chance that like I was going to see her through my car window with a mask on in the height of the pandemic when you weren't supposed to be looking at anyone or seeing anyone, right? Like it was like I had to make those connections with people because that was missing. That for me and that for a lot of people hit mental health really, really hard like the loneliness epidemic and being socially isolated and physically isolated, that, that hurts a lot. And that, I think that takes its toll. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Theon, I'd like to turn to you next. You're one of the co-founders of SDSU's Women of Color Faculty Group. I can put a link to that group's website in the show notes. Can you say a little bit about the origin of the Women of Color Group? Sure, absolutely. Um, Just listening to Lisa and Allison, you know, talk about sort of basic needs not really being met. Um, I think that's one aspect of of what's happening in our society. But as a clinical psychologist, I have the, um, I don't know if I want to call it a benefit, but an invitation into people's lives, the, the sides that other people don't get to see. And so for me, I feel the heaviness of this. I feel the heaviness of this not just for my loved ones, but also my colleagues at San Diego State. So to answer your question, um, we started a group called uh, Women of Color Empowerment Group, and it was to provide culturally competent care. And if you hear all those words and they mean nothing to you, that's one thing. But for the women who needed this, those words meant a lot. I came to find out that there were women of color across our campus who were struggling to the point where They were having miscarriages where they were having mental breakdowns and having to leave campus where they weren't able to take care of their basic needs or their children's basic needs. And that was that was eye opening to me, but it also lit a fire under me and motivated me to do something. How would you characterize the distinct mental health needs of women of color in higher ed? (laughs) Um, You know, when we sent out our invitation to participate in this group, there were some key words that we included. One, racial battle fatigue. And again, if you don't know what that means, it may roll off your shoulders and it means nothing. But for a woman of color, it sits with you because it describes what you go through day day in and day out. And it's equivalent to sort of what someone experiences when they're at war. Are we at war at San Diego State? No, but sometimes it can feel like it. And so the heaviness of that day in and day out, the isolation, Uh, The lack of diversity, I can say, you know, in my own department, we've never had a black tenure track professor. And I still, there's no good answer for that. And it baffles me. And so there's that piece of it. There's the race lighting, um, people just saying, it's all in your head. It's not real. Um, And so all put together, 
you know, standing out, feeling like you are the only one, feeling like you don't have the social support, knowing that in a in a department where there are almost 2,000 Latinx students and only two Latinx professors, what does that mean for those two professors in terms of supporting those students? And does that service go on their tenure, you know, track record? No, it doesn't. So all of that to say... Um, it is different. And when we sent out that invitation, we had over 70 women who responded immediately, but we could only take in 20. And of those 20, all of them found it to be absolutely beneficial. Well, I told you I woke up on the wrong side. I told you. No. I told you. <laughs> Everything you no said filter, was on the right side. No filter it, this morning. You know, I, I, the very idea that someone in a psychology department would say it's all in your head to anyone on any subject let alone the sort that you described, seems profoundly disturbing. And, you know, I want to clarify that, you know, with race lighting, it's not like my colleague's going to say, Fiona, you're making all this up, but it's those slight comments like, mm-hmm. did that really happen? Are you sure? Well, maybe it was this. Uh, maybe the reason why we didn't hire that person is because they weren't a good fit or mm-hmm. it's a pipeline mm-hmm. issue. I mean, all of these things are another reminder that, there was a twindemic, right? It wasn't just a pandemic. It was also the racial piece yeah. and this awakening after George Floyd was killed and everybody got motivated. But then I looked two years later and what's, what's changed? Look at our departments. What has changed? Not much. We have a lot of different pretty, um, what, what are we calling them? Uh, diversity statements. Those are nice, right? But in terms of the numbers, what has changed? In terms of the climate, what has changed? How has the mental health support offered by your group changed over the last two years during this twindemic, these twin crises in our country? Sure. You know, that that's something that keeps me going is just to know that when these women came together, it was like finally a safe space where I can be validated and lifted up and appreciated. And talk through some of the things that they've been carrying on their own. Um, and for some of them, it was simply being able to give space to the fact that my values may not align with my department values, but I'm going to put, for example, my children first. I'm going to spend a little bit more time with them versus working on that um, that paper. Or for some women, they chose to leave the university because they felt like, you know, when I really think about it, it's not um, a life-giving sort of atmosphere for me. So I'm going to put myself and my family first and go somewhere else where I feel like I'm welcomed and appreciated. Um, But more than anything else, I think it was just a space for these women to really get a foundation (laughs) and figure out what they wanted and find labels for what they were experiencing. And I think for me, that's the most empowering piece of this is that like everybody knows term microaggression. I felt microaggressions from the time I was, I don't know, six, but I didn't know how to label it. And when you have a label for these things, it really does change the game for you. So um, overall, it, it has been greatly beneficial for the women who have attended. So DJ, I know this is your podcast, but also I can't keep my mouth shut. Um, it's your podcast too, Lisa. Okay, well, I am taking the reins here for a second. Dude. I am struck by 70 women responded and 20 were chosen to be part of this group. Yeah. That's 50 women who were so like, 
<laughs> I hear you. I hear you, Lisa. I'm not saying that this is not you accommodating. I just, we got to put resources. Sure. Right. And I, 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 I have those to, folks. And Lisa, I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, yeah. And this isn't just with, with uh, faculty members, right? Like our graduate students, same sort of thing where it's like, I'm finally ready to get the support that I need, but it's not available. I have to put in a plug for Gerana Brooks, who has been absolutely amazing in supporting us and trying to get us additional funding, which allowed us to host another group this last semester. So it's another 20 women that we were able to help. But um, I wish I could just yeah. open my doors and, you know, just you know, even if I didn't have a job, I'd be able to do it, but I can't. But Lisa, the 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 point that you are making is well taken. And I, again, want to oh, say yeah. this is not just faculty members. This is also graduate students who are struggling um, in the mental health department. Allison, I'd like to turn to you now. You're the Associate Director of our university's Center for Teaching and Learning, which puts you in contact with a lot of faculty and also gives you, I think, a really distinct perspective on faculty experience. When I look at popular media, I can tell that everybody knows what the student experience has been during this pandemic, at least to some degree. Everybody knows that students have struggled, many of them. What I've learned and tried to share over the last couple of podcasts are that faculty are tired too, and many of our adjuncts seem to be positively burnt out. In response, for our listeners, our university has just released some mental health guidance for faculty, and I can include a link to that in our show notes as well. Allison, what have you seen our faculty going through? I think the faculty, and I'll, I'll kind of touch back to what Fionn was saying, because our graduate students, I view a lot of our graduate students as, right, those who are preparing to be faculty, so especially those in our, our doctoral programs. Um, but a lot of our master's programs across campus are really feeding into doctoral programs. So I kind of, mm -hmm. CTL does a lot with faculty and also graduate students, right? And so I get, I have my finger on the pulse of both. What Mike Borgstrom, who's the director for CTL, and I have been doing this last year since we've been back, right? Quotes, mm -hmm. back from the pandemic, is that we know faculty are struggling. And it's not just burnout. It's not like, oh, teaching is hard. Research is hard. I'm tired. It's so much more than that. Um, it is that our, our mental resources are just abysmal right now. Some folks have to take leave um, because they are struggling mentally and physically, right? But this one is really focused on the mental. It's not like that's never happened before. But I think the pandemic and the twindemic has really shown a light on the fact that mentally, right, we're all sick right now. A lot of us are experiencing symptoms, you know, of burnout, of fatigue, of depression, of anxiety. Um, you know, I've heard anecdotal stories of faculty across different campuses across right the globe who have had mm -hmm. mental breaks, who have like Lisa said, have reached out and very proactively searched for mental health services or kind of the, the sort of the darker side of that have needed them because they've hit a breaking point. So graduate students are breaking, faculty yeah. are breaking. Um, and, you know, you can get to the severity, the most severe, I think, as clinical psychologists and psychologists alike would, you know, suicide is sort of the end all be all the worst case scenario but it doesn't have to go that far, right? And I think that's what 
um, Joanna Brooks is trying to do with that resource guide is to try to change what Lisa was mentioning, try to change the culture, to try to change the system, to try to change the university so that it's a university that cares for its faculty, right? So here are some resources. And the first one is know that you're not alone. So I think it's really hard when you're in the middle of it. You're like, I'm the only one stressed out. I'm looking and I see Fion getting her kids dressed enough to school and she's running yep. the center and things are happening. I see Lisa over there. She's running her graduate students. And I feel like I'm the only one who can't get my stuff together, who can't get a lab meeting, who can't teach a class. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was really struck that the first bullet point on this list is know that you are not alone. And that same paragraph ends with many faculty experience ups and downs in their mental, emotional, neurological health over the course of lives and their careers. Why is that important to lead with know that you are not alone? I think when you're experiencing anxiety and depression, it feels very isolating. I think for a lot of folks, when they are depressed or anxious, right, they're kind of blinders start focusing in and they're, they can only see themselves or they can only see their pain or they can only see their anxiety. And so it's hard to remember that other people are, are experiencing this too. And like Lisa said, especially on the social media front, not everyone is posting like, I'm losing my mind today. I canceled (laughs) class again, guys. Lab meetings didn't happen because I couldn't get my stuff together. Right? Like no one's, no one's really posting or sharing that. And if you are, it's kind of on a one-to-one, like Lisa, could I just I canceled lab meeting this morning because I couldn't get it together. Like, ah, sort of shameful experience that you can't pull it together. Yeah. I think knowing that you aren't alone is important. Absolutely. I recognize that in my own experience. Fionn, you started to say something. Yeah, I I just, you know, this idea of you are not alone. I think it's it's good that we put that out there. But the reality is that when you are struggling so bad that you can't get up in the morning, you forget that you're not alone. And so, um, you know, I just want to put a plug out there for our faculty members to check in on your students. You know, I, I think we have a responsibility to to check if they look disheveled, if they look like their basic needs aren't being met, if they haven't showed up to lab, we're in a different time where we do have to be a little bit more intrusive in how we mentor our students. And mm-hmm. anytime there is a suicide, and, and, and it breaks my heart every time I hear about one, the one thing that people say is, I wish I would have asked them how they were doing. I wish I would have checked up on them. And so I just want to remind folks, it it, does, it takes two seconds to, to check in on a student and say, hey, I want to know how are you really doing? Or even on your colleagues. How are you really doing? Like we all have a responsibility at this point in our society, because again, when you are struggling so much that you can't get out of bed, guess what? You're not picking up the phone and saying, hey, I need to make an appointment at Counseling and Psych Services, because you just don't even have that much motivation to do that. I know that I've made time in my classes to talk with my students and I've asked them, how are you? Where are you? Do you want to share anything? Let's save a little space. To, to share out. Let's just front load compassion in today's class. And it occurs to me that the students who are really hurting are probably not going to say anything. But if four, five of their classmates share challenges they're facing at various scales, my hope is that when I conclude that little five-minute span of time by saying, I'm not that kind of doctor, but if you are facing a challenge, I can help you network the university and put you in touch with someone. I hope that the student who really needs the help hears other students sharing their challenges and does reach out to me or somebody else. 
And that really is how we break the stigma because DJ, what you've done is you haven't just said you're not alone, you've demonstrated that you are not alone, right? Like simply by opening up the conversation and having other people share their struggles, that in itself can let other people know, okay, I'm not the only one who's struggling. So I'm doing that kind of intuitively, sort of like, I don't know what to do. I'll try this. I mean, I've been teaching for 15 years. That I can do. I've been being explicitly compassionate for now uh, two years, and I'm figuring some things out. But what do I do with my colleagues? I, I don't reach out to my colleagues beyond a handful of people to say, how are you? So if I can interrupt, DJ, I beg to differ because you have reached out to me. I was struggling in this last year. My father had a stroke and he's currently in hospice. And there have been people that I have like given this information to, um, partly because I need the support, but partly because right when we're stressed out, if we're not so far gone, you can say, you know what, I've got this big thing going on. And so if I miss something, can you just like, let me know or ding me? Like, I'm really not trying to be a space cadet, but there's these other extenuating circumstances. And you have checked on me a couple of times by a text or an email. So I think some of what you're doing might not feel like it, but it is. It is checking, right? So it's sending the occasional text. It's um, having coffee. It's, right, it's reaching out. And it's not like, hey, I'm doing a mental health check. Let me go down my list and start <laughs> checking, right? But it is, it is that occasional, like, hey, Fionn, how are you? Good, how are you, right? Sometimes it's just letting someone know that you're thinking of them. And if you have that relationship, you can, you know, if you know something more, you can dig in, you can ask, but there's plenty of people that I, I wouldn't be like, Hey, person, I don't know. Let me ask about your <laughs> mental health status. <laughs> right. Like we should, we should be at that point. Like, Hey, I'm a resource. Do you need anything? Right. Yes. I, I was just checking in and letting you know, I was, I was here, yeah. which is a product of our, pre-crisis friendship. Yep. I'm going to circle back to my question that I asked Fion. You know, if I see a colleague on Zoom, it looks like he's having a really bad day, but it's not somebody I have a pre-existing authentic friendship with. I might have that person's cell number, but I've never texted anything other than I'm going to be five minutes late for the meeting. What, what can I do as somebody who's not currently a department chair or school director? This is where I'm going I'm to lean on Lisa here. I'm curious to hear what Lisa has to say about this. Mm -hmm. I feel like there is a, there's an interesting connection between like clinical psychology work, like our, you know, counseling and friendship. And I think we need both. Uh, you know, the, the situation where you don't know the person all that well is kind of tricky, but I've done it in my class this semester. Somebody wrote a discussion board post response, what amazes you? And, and most of the responses are really fun and uplifting. And this one was a little dark. I didn't know the student, but I just reached out and said, here's what I saw. Because of this, I wanted to check. And I think that mm -hmm. that level of engagement is okay. And you don't have to put it on yourself to have the kind of skills that Fion has, for example. Just checking in is okay. Just bearing witness sometimes is okay. And then connecting to resources is another way that faculty can be really helpful to colleagues and to right. students. I talked to a colleague about a year and a half into the pandemic. We hadn't really been in touch. 
And he ended up sitting in my office for three hours. We talked for three hours, just about things. Afterwards, he said, I feel so much lighter. I feel better. I didn't do anything magical. We just were honest and real and human with each other in a way that he didn't know that he needed until we made that space. Now, I'm not trying to say like three hours of my time is some huge gift, but also I wasn't writing a manuscript during those three hours. And that's the way in which the organizational psychologist in me sees that I have supported the ecology, the health of our university by engaging in this conversation with another faculty member and taking my time and doing that. Plus, it was my pleasure. But also, Mm -hmm. it does not reflect on my faculty assigned time report. (laughs) Um, I don't get to put that on my CV. Um, And I think that those kinds of efforts are really important for retention of key faculty. So that's like one really big thing that's on my mind is how can we design our systems to to make space for those kinds of connections that are so vital to our well-being? Right. Lisa, there's so much that you said that um, I think needs to be highlighted. But number one is just the climate that we are in at a university. We're high performing. We're meant to be productive and produce and not slow down. But you never know what the person next to you is going through. And so as a psychologist, I make it sort of my mission to make the implicit explicit. And what does that mean? What's really going on on the inside? Because you can't tell from the exterior. I I can't tell what's going on with Lisa this morning or Allison just from looking on the outside. So what does that mean? DJ, for you, it means setting up some time with one of your colleagues who maybe you don't know and just saying, because I don't know you, I want to have coffee. There are faculty members who feel isolated, who feel like they're not a part of the group. And so I make it sort of a mission of mine to reach out and make time for that, which is what Lisa just described. Because when you sit down and you remove the veil, guess what? Sometimes there's a lot behind it. And you were the one who was able to connect with that person who would have struggled with that, that situation in isolation. Can I piggyback on that, DJ? Because I think the pandemic has provided an interesting sort of context for new faculty members. So we have a new faculty member in our department who started two years ago. So her first semester was when we were completely online. So her first academic year was completely online and she had (laughs) pretty much zero interactions face-to-face with anyone, right? We were not the only department that hired that year. So she's not unique. We're not the only university. Everyone went through this. Um, But there was another faculty member who also came in 2020. And for research interests, I had reached out to this person like, hey, I see you're doing X, Y, Z. I'm doing this. You know, I haven't noticed you. When did you, you know, come onto campus? Would you like to have coffee and sit down and talk? And <laughs> little did I know, and I'm having kind of a Lisa moment, I was one of the first human-to-human face-to-face interactions this person who was not in psychology had mm-hmm. with someone. And I think that that, it's, it's, it's bad, but it's not bad in the sense that anyone can control it. So I think, you know, Mm-hmm. We need to, like Lisa said, we need to sort of flip the script a little bit on how our time is valued, on how, because I think like that informal mentoring, we could have a formal mentoring program. It might work for some, it might not work for others, 
the informal mentoring seems to be more helpful um, in terms of mental health, at least anecdotally, the people that I know, it's like they have coffee with a friend, they have a research, you know, lunch or brunch or breakfast or whatever. You come out of those things feeling refreshed or feeling lighter, like you've been able to get some stuff out, even if it's not heavy, deep stuff. Mm-hmm. But especially if it is heavy, deep stuff, you feel a lot better. And so I just think that it's interesting that we have kind of two cohorts of folks and maybe even the third cohort, right? The folks who started in 2019, 20, who just got here and then got thrown back home. These three years of folks, <laughs> we talk about our students' experience with this, but faculty are doing this too. Graduate students are doing this. My graduate mm-hmm. student had almost an entire online degree, right? <laughs> like oh. all of this is very. It's very challenging, but it's not impossible. I do want to circle back to something Lisa said, a self-deprecating remark where you said it's not like that was any great gift. It was three hours of Lisa's time. For me, thinking back to my preamble about productivity, three hours is a lot of time. It is a gift for Mm -hmm. people who really value our time, but also the other side of Lisa's point is there's there's no system for valuing that. Okay, so the organizational psychologist in me has feelings about this topic, which is it has to do with how performance is defined and measured. And what does it mean to be a high-performing faculty member? What, what is that about? What does that look like? And I think we are fed one linear model of what that looks like. And... It is narrowly defined. It can vary from discipline to discipline, but certainly in psychology, how much grant money are you bringing in is number one. How many publications are you getting? It's number two on the list, close second. And what kind of resource or inspiration you are to your students or to your colleagues is much, much further down. And I would say that in some fields, the stereotype is that the more supportive you are of your students and your colleagues, the assumption is, is that you are lesser of a researcher. You are not as good or as tough or as strong. That's the type of mindset I would like to burn to the ground. If I may interject for our listeners who are not at San Diego State, at our university, teaching is file one. And I absolutely validate everything Lisa said. All those professional productivities are the things that people value, even if file one at our university is still teaching. So to devalue teaching over various measures of research productivity, that's, that's, that, that's the norm. That's the way it, it was in grad school. I looked around at the people modeling how to professor, and that was what I saw. Well, if we want to talk about retention, right, that's always what comes up, retention. How are we retaining our students? How are we retaining our faculty? Hmm. I am one of, I don't know how many Black people on campus, but guess what? When Black students want support, they sit in my office. And guess what? I'm not going to close the door because I remember being in their shoes and not seeing anyone who looked like me, who could support me. So this, again, goes back to how are we measuring productivity? Well, if at San Diego State, I'm helping you retain the 300 Black students, then I feel like that's me being productive, but I still have to do everything that Lisa just named. And so this brings me back to the Woman of Color Support Group. This is a theme that we heard 
come up again and again. It's like we're a Hispanic serving institution. So what does that mean for, you know, my husband, who's one of the only um, Hispanic professors at San Diego or in our psychology department? It means he's spending a lot of time mentoring students, but he has three kids and he has to be just as productive. And if he wants to be a full professor, guess what? The expectations are just the same. So in terms of productivity, I think we also need to think about our retention efforts and what are we doing to retain our students at San Diego State. So then let's put this in terms of systems. A question that I've asked other people on other podcasts in different contexts is what have we learned over the last two years? If normally we think about how we measure our colleagues in terms of teaching, professional activity, and service. How do we create systems that reward us for compassion, whether it's compassion for our students, undergraduate and graduate, or compassionate support for our colleagues? And I think the word retention, which Fionn has used, is maybe a key to this. But how do we build this system into what we do at our university? And no one listening to this podcast can tell, but Lisa raised her hand. I think we need to think about performance. What does it mean to be productive in a way that is more subjective, which is very uncomfortable for a lot of people, but it needs to be more holistic. So we cannot have a functional department with people who get zero grant funding, get very few publications, but are just great at supporting everybody else. We also cannot have a department where everybody is just focused solely on getting grants and publications, and they're not really reaching out and, and, and being great mentors. I mean, some people are great at both, but I don't even want to talk about them. So um, people who are great at neither. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't want to talk about them either. Uh, but for the rest of us mortals, um, we need to think about the ecology of a department, of the college, of the university. It really has to do with embracing our diversity, being an inclusive environment, and honoring the various ways in which we show up to support SDSU. Now, the tough part is people love to count. Everyone right. wants to count, and it's easy to add up yeah. a dollar figure. It's easy to count publications. And the, mm -hmm. the allure of that, it feels, it feels like it's fair because it's objective. Allison's shaking her head because she knows. Because um, she knows that nobody's counting how many hours did Lisa talk with that colleague who was having a bad day or how many students are in line outside Theon's office. Some things just don't get counted. Right. But do you know within your department how people are, are showing up and how people are really helping in, in a variety of ways? I think that we largely do. And I think there could be a consensus of people saying, yes, I agree. Allison does support the department in these ways. She also supports the college in these ways and the university in this, these ways. This is part of her contribution of being an excellent professor at SDSU. Oh, so what you're talking about is thinking about those same three files, research, teaching, and service, as if, as if all three of those folders mattered, when right. in fact we know the teaching folder matters less 
whether at your university research is file one or file two. And the service folder is like, oh, yeah, I guess I'll open that too. When it comes time to evaluate faculty performance. What you're proposing, Lisa, is that we actually take seriously these three dimensions of faculty activity. It's called a compensatory model in my field. And so hashtag academic jargon. Yeah. uh, You know, once a teacher, always a teacher. Uh, a compensatory model of performance where where excellence in one area can compensate for maybe you know a little less performance in the other area. It directly mm-hmm. addresses what Fian was talking about with regards to if you are one of the few black faculty members on campus and the black students come and they flock to you to get support and mentorship and guidance, which is natural and normal, then that extra burden of service, isn't just on top of all of the other things, but that becomes, that can be showcased and highlighted as a very important performance aspect in and of itself. Dion, do you want to respond to that? Lisa, what you said makes logical sense. And I think this argument has been laid out again and again and again. And this is where it starts to be feel like fatigue, right? Like I can argue that that all day long, but at the end of the day, I've made a decision that I am the evaluator of my performance. And so why do I do what I do? Because it's important to me, because I wanna see one more student walk across that stage. I wanna see mm-hmm. one more graduate student not drop out, but actually finish that degree and move into higher education. And mm-hmm. so I've moved away from looking for the university's approval or um, acknowledgement of what I'm doing, because I, again, I am my own evaluator of my performance. Do I do my job? Yes, I absolutely do. But anything in addition to that, I'm not looking for credit for it because if I continue to do that, that's where frustration (laughs) sets in. So I've made a decision that I'm not even going to look for that from the university. I get it when I hear that colleague of mine say, because of your group, I got up again. Because of your group, I didn't give up. I didn't just lay there. So it's those moments for me that say it's worth it, Dion. It's worth it. I started by asking Lisa about her personal wellness plan, and I used the expression self-care, but that term is clearly a a red herring. And what I've heard all of you saying today is that we need to find ways of changing the system so that we get the support we need without desperately trying to generate it ourselves. Is that right? I don't want to send the message that as individuals, we're incapable or incompetent. That's not it. We are in a new time. We are in a new time. There are different um, stressors that we're contending with, and we need to have supports in place. We have different Mm -hmm. seasons in our lives. And so if someone is in that season where they need support, that support should be readily available to them. You three are awesome. You're amazing. Really, you are. You're going to put that in there, right? I might. Lisa, Lisa told you that in her email. Didn't you tell him, Lisa? Yeah. I, I knew they were all I did, awesome. but he had to collect I his know. own data, apparently. I know. Yeah. <laughs> what else do we need to say? I think we do have to celebrate, though, those people who are about the mission and who are doing the work, because... There are there there are people at San Diego State, and I, I feel blessed to be here with Lisa and Allison, uh, two people in my department who mm-hmm. are trying to move the agenda forward. And 
uh, Joanna Brooks, of course, and so many, Nola Bird. I mean, I could go on and on and on talking about the people at San Diego State who are trying to do something different. And so I don't want to lose sight of that effort that is being put in. I like that. And I think maybe we end with a thank you to all the faculty who are doing unseen work. Yes. Right? Because, I mean, how yes. validating would that be to hear that message? Mm-hmm. Yes. But I do want to say, like, hey, I am really proud to be around some colleagues who are doing some really great stuff, even yeah. if it doesn't count yeah. in your RTP yeah. file, even if it isn't whatever. They're just good people right. doing good right. things. I think that's awesome. The people talking to their colleagues for hours at a time because they need it. The people yeah. with a line of students outside their door, even though that's not going to end up in any part of your retention, tenure, and promotion file. Right, right. And the people who are texting Let's celebrate a friend and you. saying, hey, how are you doing? Yeah. If you're listening to this show right now, thanks. And thanks to all of you, Allison, Lisa, Fionn. Thank you so much for joining this conversation today. Good luck with editing, DJ. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. 